Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 25th, 2016, and we are going to present part six of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. It is subtitled, The Indwelling Word, one of the pet topics of Judeo-Christians, from what I understand. Presenting the last two segments of Paul's epistle to the Colossians, we made digressions to discuss several things which Paul may not have addressed explicitly, but which certainly were related to Paul's message. The first of these we addressed was what we would call substance Phariseeism. There are many substance Pharisees who seek to judge other men for partaking of things which Yahweh's law does not prohibit. Some of these things are a part of Yahweh's very creation, and therefore he provided them. So if our God provided them and did not proscribe them in his law, how could we justify prohibiting them? How could we condemn men for using such substances? The truth is that we cannot justly prohibit our brethren from anything which the law of our God does not prohibit. If we do, then we imagine ourselves to be as gods, like the high priests that Paul had scathingly criticized in his second epistle to the Thessalonians. They were sitting in the temple of God, exalting themselves above everything that was truly godly, and imagined themselves to be as gods. When man makes his own laws, rather than seeking to uphold Yahweh's law, he becomes an idolater, because he is certainly not God. Yahweh did not give men laws as a supplement to man's law. Rather, he gave men laws to live by, and when they do, they are free of the tyranny of men. Another sort of Phariseeism which we addressed was word Phariseeism. The word Pharisees insist upon controlling the lexicons of others. So where Paul had advised at Ephesians 4.29, for instance, to let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth, as one translation has it, they imagine that to refer to literal words rather than to things such as lies, flattery, threats, provocations, ribaldry, dirty jokes, statements which are actually damaging, regardless of what sort of words are used to express them. Likewise, here in Colossians 3.8, Paul admonished against filthy communications, or, as we would translate the phrase, abusive language, or perhaps shameful language. A logia could have either meaning. The shallow, Judaized, denominational Christian imagines these passages to be talking about certain words when they are really admonishing men not to lie to one another, not to slander one another, not to 
blaspheme God, not to use flattery and deceit or any of the other things which men say and do to one another, whether they be done with language that is nice or naughty. But these passages do not advocate word Phariseeism. When Christ told his disciples that the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, he did not tell them those things because they were walking around Jerusalem uttering what anyone imagined to be dirty words. The apostles were not walking around Jerusalem dropping F-bombs. Rather, as he had said in Matthew chapter 15, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, not the mere use of certain words. When Jesus said, the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 6. He did not tell them that because they were walking around using the S word, or the C word, or the dreaded F word. But rather, he told them that as he was addressing hypocritical judgment and illustrating the faults of the Pharisees who were using religion as a pretense for righteousness. That is exactly what people who use these passages to condemn another man for his language are doing. They are using religion as a pretense for their own righteousness. Our speech should be righteous no matter what words we happen to use. We should always seek to speak the truth regardless of what we are speaking about or how we choose to say what things we feel that we must say. But we must not be word Pharisees, or we will certainly make an exhibit of ourselves as hypocrites. The substance of our speech is much more important than the form of our speech. In the last segment of this presentation of Paul's Epistle to the Colossians, we had concluded with chapter 3 from the passage at verses 11 through the first half of verse 13, where Paul had written concerning the man in Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge in accordance with the image of he who is creating him. And concerning that renewed man, he had said from verse 11, where one is not Greek and Judean, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but altogether and in all ways anointed. Therefore you put on, as elect of Yahweh, holy and beloved, affections of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, forbearance, being patient with one another, and being forgiving to each other. Commenting on this statement at the end of our last presentation, we refuted the idea that Paul's statements here support universalism of any kind. These statements which Paul makes 
cannot honestly be removed from their historical context. We had explained at length that since Paul is addressing those who are the elect of Yahweh, he must be speaking only of the descendants of the Old Testament Israelites. Those descendants were indeed found among the Greeks, among the Judeans, among the barbarians, among the Scythians. Some of them were slaves, and some of them were free. Some of them were circumcised, and most of them were not circumcised. But Paul was not speaking about non-Israelites. This epistle is addressed to those who, as he had said in the first chapter, were being qualified by God the Father for that share of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who were being rescued from the authority of darkness, and, as he also said, in whom we have redemption, the dismissal of errors. For various reasons, which we have often discussed here, these things can only apply to the descendants of the Old Testament Israelites. In relation to this passage, we had previously cited Isaiah chapter 45, and especially verse 4, where it says, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I, meaning Yahweh, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me, because the ancient people of Israel were put off in the Assyrian captivity. Likewise, we cited the first epistle of Peter, who was writing to the dispersed Israelites of the Old Testament, where he quoted from Hosea chapter 1, and called them, an elect race, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. In Psalm 105, observing the context of the verses, we see that the children of Israel are collectively the anointed of God, where it speaks to the children of Israel, and it says, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance, when they were but few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Speaking of those people of Israel collectively who went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, meaning that they had to move from Mesopotamia to Palestine, the land of Canaan, to Egypt, back out of Egypt to Arabia, through the intervening countries and back into Palestine. Here Paul is referring to those same Old Testament Israelites who are the elect and who are those who had been anointed by Yahweh God himself. Paul is not electing and anointing anyone in their place, but rather, as he said in Ephesians chapter 2, the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Therefore, identifying that household, we had better identify it according to the words of both the apostles and prophets. Likewise, in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 20, 
The Apostle told his intended readers, Yet you have an anointing from the Holy One. Meaning that the anointing of the people of God comes from God, and it is not from man. And, as far as we are told in the Old Testament, it is those very same people of the Old Testament who received that anointing. There's no anointing in Scripture for anybody else. Paul also said in Acts chapter 26 that I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes. There's no Gentiles here. The twelve tribes are the Gentiles. They are the nations. Our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. These European nations, which Paul had called Israel according to the flesh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they are the subject of the good message of the gospel of Christ. They are the twelve tribes scattered abroad to which Paul refers, and to which the apostle James had written. They are the nations descending from the promises to Abraham, the seed to which Paul had referred in Romans chapter 4. Once they are reconciled to Christ, they are no longer Greek and Judean, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, meaning that they should love one another regardless of their status in life and regardless of which of the scattered nations of Israel they happen to have come from. It is for this reason that all Israel shall be saved, that Paul admonishes that they should have affections of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, forbearance, and patience with one another, and that they should be forgiving to each other. However, Christianity does not compel Christians to have any of these feelings for those outside of the bonds of the covenant. Instead, Paul advises these same Colossians in chapter 4 of this epistle that in reference to those outside, you walk in wisdom, buying the time. Christ had told his disciples to love one another, and Paul had told the Christians at Rome to prefer one another. This is stated in Romans chapter 12, where Paul had written that, in this manner, from verse 5, in this manner we are, we are many in one body with Christ, and each one members of one another, but having varying gifts according to the favor which is given to us, whether interpretation of prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or service in the ministry, or he that is teaching in education, or he that encourages in encouragement, he that is sharing with simplicity or sincerity, he that is leading with diligence, he showing mercy with cheerfulness, love without acting, abhorring wickedness, cleaving to goodness, brotherly love, affection towards one another, in honor, preferring one another with diligence, not hesitating. 
fervent in spirit, serving the prince, rejoicing in expectation, persevering in afflictions, firmly persisting in prayer, sharing in the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality, preferring one another and loving one another, then by necessity, those who are outside of the promises and the covenants and the body of Christ must be neglected. All Israel shall be saved, but as Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, the children of Israel. It is the power of God. And if they should not receive the gospel, then they should not have our hospitality, which we see in the second epistle of John. This is how, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Christians should come out from among them, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean. With this we shall commence with Colossians 3.13 where Paul continues to address the Christians at Colossae as to how they should treat one another. And having already read half of this verse, we will continue with the later half. If one should have cause for complaint against anyone, then just as the prince has forgiven you, so also you do. As Paul had said in Ephesians chapter 4, And be ye kind to one another, and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. The apostles had asked Christ of this, where it is recorded in Matthew chapter 18. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say, not unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. However, the example in the parable which Christ gives after those statements in that chapter, and the similar explanation which he had made that is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, both inform us that to forgive one's brother of a transgression the brother is ex expected to be repentant. So we have the words attributed to Christ in Luke chapter 17, where it says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespasses against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee three times, seven times in a day, I'm sorry, against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day, turns again to thee saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. We must therefore forgive our repentant brethren. But it must be remembered that we have no obligation to forgive unrepentant sinners. For instance, Paul himself advised the Corinthians to ostracize the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, telling them to deliver such a one unto Satan, 
for the destruction of the flesh. And therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Putting such a wicked person out of the Christian assembly, the unrepentant sinner would be at the mercy of the wicked world. And as John tells us in his epistle, the whole world lies under the power of the wicked one. And the will of God would be done with him, or perhaps with her. When the assembly at Corinth, God using his adversaries to judge sinners. When the assembly at Corinth had instead chosen to forgive the fornicator, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes I forgave it, in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Witnesses is evident that while Paul continued to have reservations concerning the particular individual, he would nevertheless honor the actions of the assembly and act in a forgiving manner as well. Doing this, the enemies of Christ... Satan, the Jews, the prosecutors, the lawyers. The enemies of Christ would not be able to take advantage of divisions within the body of Christians. But there is no expectation to forgive outsiders or aliens who are not under the covenants and promises of God. Not even God offers forgiveness to goats as he explicitly states in Matthew chapter 25. Paul continues, verse 14. And in addition to all these, love, which is the bond of perfection. And the Codex Claromontanus has the bond of unity instead. But the word bond is where we could infer the meaning of unity. Some months ago, we made a presentation at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People in Kentucky entitled Unity and Divisions. Doing that, we attempted to demonstrate that Christian Israelites should find grounds for true unity in the common expectation of eternal life which all of the children of Israel share, since they alone have that common promise of eternal salvation. As Yahweh said in Isaiah chapter 45, But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. And later on in the chapter, he promises that all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory all the seed. Here Paul is explaining that very thing, that because they indeed are the elect of God and anointed, as he says, in every way, they should treat one another well and have a common bond of unity in love, which is the bond of perfection. Thusly, Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that even if, speaking 
with the tongues of men and angels, even if having the gift of prophecy and an understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge and faith, and even if bestowing all his goods for the poor, and going so far as giving up his body to be burned, if he had not love, he is nothing. But that love must be for one another, according to the commandments of Christ. In John chapter 15, we have this record of the words of Christ, where he is speaking of this common love, which Christians should share. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that you should go forth and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The demand for this love, and the forgiveness of which Paul speaks here, is nothing new among the children of Israel, as it says in Leviticus chapter 19, that thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge, and this is qualified, against the children of thy people. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh, understanding the words of Christ at this sermon on a mount, that they only pertain to the children of thy people, to his disciples, to those whom he had chosen. We see these values reflected in Leviticus chapter 19. However, love such as this has rarely been practiced widely among Christian Israelites. In their sin, as is apparent all over the world today, they would rather have love for the beasts. Love is the bond of perfection. But Paul informs us here that this love is in addition to how these Christians should treat one another, quote-unquote, just as Christ has forgiven you. Again, Christians have no compulsion to treat those who are outside of the bonds of the covenant in this manner. Christ instructed his followers to love their own enemies, but he never instructed his followers to love his enemies. As David says in the Psalms, Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. That's how Christians should treat the enemies of Christ, as their own enemies. Thusly also, the Apostle John wrote in his second epistle, for 
many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, and this is important, that you not lose those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. That means don't even greet him. For he that biddeth him Godspeed, whoever greets the Jew, the Muslim, the alien, the racial alien who's outside of the bonds of the covenant and does not bear the doctrine of Christ. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. You want to love a nigger, you become a sinner, twice the child of hell that the nigger is. Accepting the Jews who are forever opposed to Christ. Accepting the dogs who are not to eat the bread of the children from the table of communion. As John warns here, Christians can lose the things which they had wrought and therefore not receive a full reward. This hatred for the enemies of Christ should still be borne by all Christians everywhere. It should never have gone out of style. As Paul wrote in the epistle to the Hebrews concerning Christ in chapter 1, But to which the angel said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Again he wrote concerning Christ in chapter 10, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth, not expecting his enemies to convert, from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their iniquities and sins will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. If all of these things were not still relevant in the Christian dispensation, then Paul would have no business repeating them. The enemies of Christ are also the enemies of Christians, as Zechariah gave the purpose of the coming of Christ, where it is recorded in Luke chapter 1, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. 
If all of these things were not relevant to the children of Israel in the Christian dispensation, then Paul, as he did in Hebrews chapter 11, had no business holding them up as an example of the faith, where the ancient children of Israel by faith had quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, the people of other races. And that is indeed an example for Christians today, as they are once again flooded with aliens. So Paul writes again of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, as ashes under his feet. Surely Paul was both relevant and correct in making those examples to the Hebrews, because, as it says of Christ in Revelation, in righteousness... He does judge and make war. But here Paul talks about peace in verse 15. And the peace of Christ must be the judge in your hearts, for which you are also called in one body, and you should be thankful. As it says in Luke chapter 1, in the announcement of the birth of the Christ child, Honor to Yahweh in the heights and peace upon the earth among approved men. The peace of Christ is that peace which the children of Israel are promised along with the call to obedience in the gospel of Christ. Thus it says in Isaiah chapter 54, speaking of the children of Israel, for thy maker is thine husband. <coughs> Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God, and this verse defines just who it was who was called. For a moment, for a small moment, have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Israel was dispersed. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer, who is Christ. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall be depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed. How many different people could have Yahweh's peace if he only promised it to the children of Israel? Saith Yahweh that has mercy on thee, and mercy, kindness, and the covenant are only for Israel.
O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, describing Israel when they were taken into captivity, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones. This is the same as the description of the new Jerusalem for the twelve tribes of Israel, seen in Revelation chapter 21. And all thy children, not all of every children, all of thy children shall be taught of Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of thy children, speaking to Israel. So the children of Israel have peace when they are taught of the Lord, as it says here in the King James Version of Isaiah chapter 54. The children of Israel are the called of Yahweh their God, as we read again in Isaiah chapter 48. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. God doesn't change his mind. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. As we have just seen in Isaiah chapter 54, that Yahweh called the children of Israel as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when she was refused. And that refusal happened when the Old Testament Israelites were put off in the Assyrian captivity for their sins. But the call, the call is the call of the gospel, which is the announcement of peace between God and Israel, as we read in Isaiah chapter 52 from verse 6. Therefore, my people shall know my name, Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Meaning that Yahweh God is Christ. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. That publisheth peace. That bringeth good tidings of good. That publisheth salvation. And saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye, when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. And in Isaiah chapter 54, we see that this call to Israel is a call for a wife to return to her husband. This is important to understand because only in that manner is Israel called in one body to Christ. As it says in the law, a husband and wife become one flesh. In Genesis chapter 2, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. From the time of the Exodus and Mount Sinai, Yahweh God considered himself to be the husband of the nation of Israel, his wife. So if Christ is the head of the body of the children of Israel, and the husband as well, then he must be of the same flesh as his wife.
That is the requirement for a valid marriage in the law. As it says in that same chapter of Genesis, And Adam gave names to all the cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet, meet for him, a help meet for him. And the Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which Yahweh God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And of course, I accept that all of this is allegorical, stressing the importance of the racial proximity which one's wife should have to a man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that all flesh is not the same flesh. No creature of another race can be a part of the body of Christ, since the body of the wife must be of one and the same flesh with the husband. To fulfill the law and be able to betroth himself to Israel, as it is promised in Hosea chapter 2, Christ had to be of that same flesh and bone as the children of Israel. Thusly we read in Paul's epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 2, For surely not that of angels he has taken upon himself, but he has taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren that he would be a compassionate and faithful high priest of the things pertaining to Yahweh to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Some people errantly doubt that Christ received 23 chromosomes from Mary, his mother. If Christ was not of the physical seed of Abraham as Mary, his mother, then he could not have, in all respects, become like the brethren. If Christ was literally of the seed of Abraham, then Mary was his natural mother. And here we also see that the brethren of Christ also must be of the literal seed of Abraham, the children of Israel. Christians could not be one body with Christ as the head, and the nation of the people of Israel made up of Christians could not be represented as the wife of Christ in that one body unless Yahshua Christ was of the same flesh and the same bone as those whom he called to return to him as his wife, who are properly only those descendants of the Old Testament Israelites the seed of Abraham. The whole law and the 
relationship between Israel and God are hopelessly intertwined. You can't unravel it. You cannot detach the children of Israel from God. This is the only way in which Christians may be called in one body with Christ. Those who are not first of that body, but are of a different flesh, cannot ever be Christians, simply because they are not called to return to Him. They are not the called, nor are they the chosen, nor are they of the same body. They cannot be the wife of God. As the children of Israel are depicted as saying, in Isaiah chapter 63, the people of thy holiness have possessed it, meaning the old kingdom. But a little while, our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Those are the outsiders of which Paul later speaks here, and the enemies of the Hebrews, the enemies of Luke, and the enemies of the Revelation in the passages which we have already mentioned. Continuing with Paul, verse 16 of Colossians chapter 3, the word of Christ must dwell in you abundantly with all wisdom, teaching, and advising each other with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, in grace, singing with your hearts to Yahweh. This encouragement to celebrate our God and our salvation is merely a continuation of the Old Testament tradition reflected throughout the Psalms of David. From the 95th Psalm, O come, let us sing unto Yahweh. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all gods. Many people, even the aliens among us, profess to have Christ. But we must ask, do they truly have the word of Christ? Not the word Christ, but the word of Christ. The word of Christ must dwell in you abundantly. If they do not have the word of Christ, then they do not really have Christ, as Christ himself had warned us. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name? have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The word of Christ said that if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. While here Christ had reinforced the commandment to love one another, 
The plural commandments, as he often himself defined them, are found in the Old Testament law. This is the word of Christ which must abide in us, as Yahweh had promised that he would write his law in the hearts of the children of Israel. And the Apostle John said the same thing in another way in 1 John chapter 3. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments in our heart, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwells in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. There is a lot of theological psychobabble in Judaized denominational churchianity concerning the nature of the indwelling word of God. But this is the only indwelling word of God found in the scripture, that the law of God was written into the hearts of the children of Israel, which is those who are of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the literal descendants of Jacob, as Yahweh God himself had promised the Old Testament Israelites that he would write his law in their hearts in connection with the new covenant that is promised to them. In Jeremiah chapter 31, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the indwelling word. Paul quoted the same passage in relation to Christ in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to make a very short digression. No alien could ever keep the law of God. Why? No alien among us could ever keep the law of God. Why? Because by his very presence among us, he's in violation of the law of God. That's why. So no alien among us could ever keep the law of God. Don't imagine any alien among us to have God's law written in his heart. Because by his very presence among us, he's in violation of the law. Period. End of story. That's all it takes. A bastard shall not enter the congregation of the Lord.
We are to come out from among them and be separate, a holy nation, a peculiar people. No alien should be among us to keep the law of God. Let him go keep it in the jungle in Kenya and see how far he gets. Being willing to follow the law of God is a sign that one's heart is circumcised after the manner in which Yahweh had promised those same Old Testament Israelites in the law itself. In Deuteronomy chapter 30. There we see a, we see foretold a future recovery of the children of Israel after the captivity which they would suffer in the event that they were disobedient. And they were disobedient. So they went into that captivity 700 years after Deuteronomy was written. There the word of Christ speaks to the children of Israel. And it says, And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, where Yahweh thy God has driven thee, and shall return unto Yahweh thy God, not return to Palestine, return unto Yahweh thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee, command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, then, that then Yahweh thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return, and will return, and gather thee from all the nations where Yahweh thy God has scattered thee, if any of thine, be driven out into the outmost parts of heaven. From thence will Yahweh thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And Yahweh thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. And Yahweh thy God will circumcise thine heart, and the heart of thy seed, to love Yahweh thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou may live and Yahweh thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and upon them that hate thee which persecuted thee and thou shalt return and obey the voice of Yahweh and do all this do all his commandments which I command thee this day and this summarizes the entire story of the Old Testament Israelites, that they suffered these things for their sin, but they were promised reconciliation in a Messiah, which we see is stated explicitly in Daniel chapter 9, where it says that, among other things, the Messiah would make reconciliation for iniquity. The message of the Gospel is a message of good news, deliverance of the captives, a rescue from the powers of darkness, redemption and reconciliation for iniquity, and a forgiveness of sins. And it is the announcement of that same new covenant with the children of Israel, which is promised in Jeremiah. When the ancient children of Israel seek to return to Yahweh their God through Christ, then in Deuteronomy, he had promised to circumcise their hearts that they may love his law.
This is the only prophesied matter in which the indwelling word is dispensed to the people of God. The people who are the descendants of the Old Testament Israelites for whom Christ had come. Even the promises of that first Christian Pentecost, the Judeo-Christians love to read the later half of Joel chapter 2, they never read the beginning. Even the promises of that first Christian Pentecost, foretold in Joel chapter 2, are predicated upon this same thing. As speaking to those same children of Israel, it first says, Therefore also now, saith Yahweh, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. And turn unto Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repent him of the evil. Then, in relation to Christ and his bride, which are the collective people of Israel, it says further on, in verse 16, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber, and the bride out of her closet. They weren't in Jerusalem. Rend your heart and not your garments, because Yahweh your God cares for the substance of your faith and not the superficial appearance of your religion. It is the same with love for your brethren. Love for your brethren is in substance and not merely in superficial kindness. As the Apostle James admonished in his lone epistle, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, if it has not works, faith is dead, being alone. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, before giving them the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience, Yahweh had appealed to the children of Israel in the same manner which he had later in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And he said, Only Yahweh had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them even you, above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Rend your hearts, and not your garments. So we see that the children of Israel should have loved his law all the more, because his law set them above all other peoples. So it is today. In Christ, as we have already cited this evening from 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostles continued to exhort the twelve tribes of Israel in this same manner, that they were to be an elect race, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. So Paul admonished the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to come out from the midst of them 
and be separated, because Christ has no accord with Belial. When a Christian Israelite seeks to separate himself from the other races, he is obeying the indwelling word. When he abhors sin, even if at times his flesh is weak, he is nevertheless obeying the indwelling word. Christians can sin, as the Apostle John had said elsewhere in that same epistle. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and the sins of the whole society, as John proceeds to explain. And as John also says in that epistle, if their seed abides in them, if they are of the Adamic race, which Yahweh created, they really cannot sin, because their sin will not be accounted to them. So here in 1 John 3, we can come to understand that if Christians love their God and his law, then they shall abide in his love. Paul spoke similarly to the Romans in Romans chapter 7, where he said in part, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. John described this same thing as conviction of the heart. Then Paul, understanding that there were times when he would sin, in that same place, had admitted that I am a miserable man. And then he asked, rhetorically, who will deliver me from this body of death? After making that admission, he gave his thanks to Yahweh his God that he was indeed able to deliver him from death, as he says in Romans 7. And for that same reason, Paul says here in verse 17, And everything, whatever you would do, in word or in deed, all in the name of Prince Yahshua, being thankful to Yahweh the Father through him. Christians should forever be thankful to Yahweh their God, because in him they have a promise of redemption from hell and death. As it says of the children of Israel in Hosea chapter 13, The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. In other words, the place to which Ephraim was taken in captivity, that would be the place of the breaking forth of children, when Abraham's seed became many nations, the nations that Paul addressed later. And Yahweh says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Meaning that he is not going to repent from the promise to destroy death and the grave. Thusly, it also speaks of the children of Judah in Isaiah 
Chapter 28 In a Messianic Prophecy Wherefore hear the word of Yahweh, you scornful men, that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. In other words, they were secure, they were confident of their secure position in their covenant with hell and death. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves, just like people today. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not be, shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet, and the hell shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place, which was also falsehood, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand, when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then you shall be trodden down by it. From the time that it goes forth it shall take you, for morning by morning shall it pass over, by day and night, and it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. Yet no race has such a promise, and for that alone the children of Israel should love one another, because they have a promise of living with one another for eternity. If one hates his brother, what kind of eternity should one have? If one loves the heathens, who according to Obadiah, shall be as though they had not been, one shall have an eternity of nothing. Here Paul's attention turns to discuss some of the more immediate matters of worldly conduct in Christ, which all Christians... should also follow if they truly love one another. Wives, subject yourselves to the husbands as is proper with the prince. Husbands, love the wives and have no bitter feelings toward them. And perhaps that may be rendered as and do not be exasperated with them. Liberalism and democracy are not godly. Christians are only assured liberty in Christ, and Christianity is a theocratic institution, not a democratic one. Where Yahweh God said to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, that thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. He was not punishing her, He was only demanding that she be restored to her place in the natural order of his creation. Thus it says in Genesis chapter 2, And Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a help, meet for him, an aid fitting for him. 
is how we would probably say that today. An assistant fitting for him. Therefore, Paul had written likewise in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. In a similar statement in Ephesians, an epistle written not long before this one, Paul said, Subject yourselves to one another in fear of Christ. Wives to their own husbands as if to the prince, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ, being the husband of Israel, is the head of the assembly, which is the children of Israel. As it says in Hosea, Yahweh says to Israel, I will betroth thee unto me forever, and I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness. I believe that's in Hosea chapter 2. He is the deliverer of the body, meaning the redeemer of the children of Israel, the savior of Israel from hell and death. (coughs) But as the assembly is subject to Christ, in that manner also, wives in everything to the husbands. Husbands love the wives, just as Christ has also loved the assembly and surrendered himself for it. So as we see here, the godly Christian household is a household of three. Christ, and then the man, and then the woman. A man not subject to Christ cannot justly expect a wife to be subject to him. A man subject to Christ has that same love for his wife as Christ himself has for his own wife which is the collective of the children of Israel. The Apostle Peter had taught the same thing in chapter 3 of his first epistle. Likewise, the wives, being subject to their own husbands, in order that, if some, meaning some of the husbands, then disobey the word, through the conduct of the wives, they shall have advantage without the word, because the wives will keep them in check. Observing in fear your pure conduct, of which the dress must not be outward with braids of hair and applications of gold or putting on of garments, but the hidden man or hidden woman here, but the hidden man of the heart with the incorruptibility of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious before Yahweh. For thusly at one time also the holy women who have hope in Yahweh, had dressed themselves, being subject to their own husbands, as Sarah had obeyed Abraham, calling him master, whose children you have been born to do good, and not fearing any terror. The men likewise, living together in accordance with the knowledge that with the feminine is the weaker vessel, imparting honor as they also are fellow heirs of the favor of life, for your prayers not to be hindered. In other words, take care of your wives for your prayers not to be hindered. The proper role for women in a Christian in a Christian family is to manage the household after the manner in which it is described. <coughs> 
in Proverbs chapter 31. Of course, today we have many more modern conveniences and priorities and tasks have changed, but Proverbs chapter 31 is still the fitting example. This same thing Paul had advised Titus in chapter 2, <coughs> excuse me, where speaking of the role of elders in the Christian assembly, he had written concerning elder women, elder women in like manner, in a condition befitting sanctity, not slanderous, not enslaved to much wine, of course you could drink some wine, teachers of virtue, in order that they may admonish the young women to be lovers of husband, lovers of children, discreet, pure, good homemakers, being subject to their own husband, in order that the word of Yahweh is not blasphemed. A look at the pagan Greek literature, such as Euripides, Alcestis, or his play Electra, reveals that Greek customs in this regard were just like the Hebrew customs, that women were the management of the households of the ancient Greeks as well. It was the natural role for woman in the ancient world. Thus it should be today. Children, Colossians 3.20, Children, you obey the parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing with the prince. And the first several of the Ten Commandments had to do with respect for God himself. Then, the very next commandment after those, usually numbered fourth, I believe, <coughs> reads thus, as the King James Version has it in Exodus chapter 20. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which Yahweh thy God has given thee. Therefore, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says that this commandment is the first commandment with a promise. And in Colossians 3.21, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, that they are not disheartened. In Ephesians chapter 6, a chapter which is very much parallel to this one, Paul made a similar exhortation and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them in education and admonition of authority. That word for provoke is the Greek word erethizo. It means to rouse to anger, to rouse to fight, to irritate, to provoke or excite. So while the proper discipline of children is certainly a necessity, as it says in Proverbs chapter 13, he that spares the rod hates his son, but he that loves him chasteneth him betimes, meaning that he <coughs> chastens his son at the appropriate times. But fathers should nevertheless not torment their children. 
That word, that same word, erethizo, appears twice in Proverbs. First in chapter 19, Everyone who hates his poor brother shall also be far from friendship. Good understanding will draw near to them that know it, and a sensible man will find it. He that does much harm perfects mischief, and he that used provoking words, words that irritate, rouse to fight, provoke or excite, rouse to anger, and he that used provoking words shall not escape. So the person making provocations is probably just as wicked or as sinful as the person who commits the resulting crime, the crime that results from the provocation. We should not provoke one another. Chapter 25 of Proverbs The north wind raises clouds, so an impudent face provokes the tongue, meaning when you confront someone who's impudent. So we may see what sort of provocation Paul refers to here. And in verse 22, Bondmen, you be obedient in all respects to fleshly masters. Not with lip service as men pleasers, but with simplicity of heart, fearing the prince. Paul had made the same admonition concerning slaves in Ephesians chapter 6, where he wrote, Bondmen, obey fleshly masters with fear and trembling, in the simplicity of your heart as with Christ, not with lip service as men pleasers, but as bondmen of Christ, doing the will of Yahweh from the soul, with good will doing service, as if to the prince, and not to man. In other words, if you're a slave under the ownership of another man, you should do good as if you were working for Christ, and not merely for another man. Knowing that whatever good each may have done, this he will recover for himself as appropriate, whether bond or free. Verse 23. Whatever you would do, work heartily, as for the prince, and not for men. Paul is still addressing bondmen. Knowing that from the prince you shall recover the return of the inheritance, the anointed prince you serve. In other words, serve Christ, because you are going to recover the return of the inheritance from Christ, the promise of life. In verse 24, the 3rd century papyrus, the Codex Alexandrinus, the majority text have, you shall receive the return of the inheritance. The Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Ephraim Siri, and Claromontanus have recover. The difference is that the first group of manuscripts have the word lambano, which is literally only to receive. And the later group have apolambano, for which we should write recover. In Ephesians 6.8, where Paul made a similar statement, he used a completely different verb, komizo, 
which may be interpreted to mean either receive or recover. The word rendered to return here in the Christogenian New Testament, it's reward in the King James Version. The word is antipodosis or antapodosis. An antapodosis is literally a giving back in turn, according to the Dallin Scott, who also note that the word can mean a rendering, a requiting, a repayment, or a reward, as it was used in the New Testament, where Liddell and Scott follow the King James Version translators. They have no secular authority for that definition. However, the inheritance in Christ is not a mere reward. Rather, it was something which was explicitly promised by God to return to the children of Israel in the redemption and that reconciliation which is the purpose of Christ. Wherever in his letters Paul expressed the concept of a mere reward, he used words related to the word mestus, which means a payment, not a repayment or a reward. We dispute the notion that antipodosis can mean reward at all, since it describes an act of getting something again, of getting something back. This meaning of the word cannot be ignored. Liddell and Scott admit that the related words, antipodoma, Strong's number 468, and ant Apodidomi, the corresponding verb, Strong's number 467, respectfully mean repayment or requital, and to give back, to repay, to tender in repayment or requital, or to make a return. Now, if ant apodoma is repayment, and if Ant Apadidomi is to repay, then an Ant Apodosis is a return and not a reward, since one can only have returned to him that which was once rightfully his own in the first place. Subtle differences in the understanding of the meanings of certain Greek words make a world of difference when one attempts to formulate a correct Christian worldview within the context of Scripture. Verse 25 But he doing wrong is provided for that which he has done wrong, and there is not respect of the stature of persons, and the Codex Furianus adds the words with God at the end of the verse. The Greek word prosopolepsia, Strong's number 4382, is rendered here as respect of the stature of persons. It may have been rendered respect of the status of persons. 
Paul made a similar statement. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul made a similar statement in reference to masters and slaves in Ephesians 6 9. Paul clarifies the intention of this statement in the opening verse of Colossians chapter 4, where he says, Masters, give to the bondmen that which is just and which is fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word prosopolepsia is a compound of the word prosopon, which refers to the face, the visage, the countenance, one's look, one's outward appearance, or one's beauty, and the form of the verb lambano, which means to receive. How you receive a person by their looks is what it really means. The meanings of the underlying words clearly implicate not the body of the person himself, not the substance of the person, but the appearance of the person, the stature or status of a person. This is how the word was used in James chapter 2, where the status of a wealthy man was contrasted to the status of a poor man. And James criticizes those who would gladly receive the one and neglect the other. The word prosopolampsia has nothing to do with the natural identity of people, but only with their position in life. If God did not observe the identity of people, then Paul would have no right to warn Christians as to those outside in chapter 4 of this epistle. The New Testament is full of examples where the identity of people, the substance of a person, is deemed to be of the utmost importance. As Christ had said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he told the Jews, You believe me not, because you are not my sheep. We pray that Friday we conclude our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Colossians and pick up right where we left off with a discussion of slavery as Paul is addressing masters and slaves here. Tomorrow night... I'm changing my schedule once again. I will explain that tomorrow night. <coughs> Jews in the Middle Ages, a look at the Spanish Inquisition. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.